Depression is different than mourning. Number one, depression is treatable. People don't realize it. It isn't mourning. Mm -hmm. It isn't appropriate for any stage of life mm -hmm. because it is deep, it is dark, it is unrelenting. It isn't appropriate if you have cancer. It isn't appropriate if you are on the doorstep of dying or you have made great losses in your life. Mourning is appropriate, oh. but, not, but not depression. Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast, Hope to Recharge, a show that is designed to bring hope, inspiration, motivation, and some practical tips to those that are battling depression and anxiety, and to those that are supporting loved ones that are going through the journey in this difficult time of depression and anxiety. I'm here to tell you, you are not alone, and we will live beyond depression and anxiety. We will share our stories one story at a time in a world of mental health together is better. I'm your host Matana. Thank you for tuning in. Hello and welcome to Hope to Recharge. Thank you for joining me here today. Today I have a very, very special guest, someone that's near and dear to me because <laughs> I feel that by me meeting him, I was on the road to recovery. Dr. Samuel Pauker. I came across his name after I went to a different psychiatrist when I was really, really hitting rock bottom. I was sent by my local doctor to a local psychiatrist, did not work out. And I was desperate to find someone good, desperate, 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 because I was desperate to heal. I was desperate to understand what I was going through. It was the beginning of my journey with mental health. And a lot of you know my story that I went into a panic attack that led to another one, to another one. And then I hit rock bottom depression. And I just said, I need help. I need help. And my aunt um, is a therapist in Manhattan and she deals a lot of time with psychiatrists in the city. And I said, give me the top psychiatrist. So she's like, you want the top? Dr. Pauker. So I'm like, how do how fast can I get into Dr. Pauker? And she said, give him a call. I think it took, uh, I left a message, my husband left an SOS message that I was, I didn't even think that I'll survive the day. And Dr. Pauker made time for us and a lot of time because the first intake took a few hours. And I can't express that feeling of relief, even though before I even got better, before anything, just meeting Dr. Parker gave me a sense of he cares, he's there to help, each story is different. And I left there thinking I'm not alone. So I'm so honored to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for clearing schedule because I know how busy you are. First of all, it's a great pleasure to be here with you. And, uh, to uh, sort of get feedback after all these years um, regarding how amazingly well you've done and uh, to see that you've embraced uh, this particular task and goal of trying to bring a message to so many people about such a challenging subject. So this is really quite a pleasure to uh, sort of uh, have the circle kind of uh, closed. So it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. And thank you. And for you look great on the thank other Thank you. That <laughs> a little bit better than last time you saw me. Uh, so. <laughs> thank God. Thank God. I, I know that you're very, very busy and I can speak to you for hours. Just leading mm -hmm. up to this conversation, we spoke a bunch of times and every bit of nugget of what you give me is so helpful and, and I cherish it. And before we deep dive into the psychology and psychiatry and medicine and what is depression, what is anxiety that 
people should understand a little bit more. Can you give the audience a background of who you are and how you got into this field of psychiatry? Well, my name is Sandy Pauker, and I'm, I'm on the clinical faculty at Cornell uh, University Medical College um, and an assistant attending at New York Presbyterian Hospital on the Upper East Side of New York City. I'm also on the uh, faculty of the Columbia University Center for Psychoanalytic Training and uh, Research. I've had a private practice in New York City since 1984. Hmm. I finished my residency, and uh, so I have been treating people since probably the last year of medical school at the University of Pennsylvania in 1979, so I think this is my 40th, 40th year anniversary. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, um, and I'm just in the process of writing a book about everything I've learned from patients over the last four decades. My training in my residency was as a general uh, practitioner psychiatrist, which uh, an adult psychiatrist treating people over the age of 18 um, till the age of actually to 102. And that's uh, someone who is trained to, uh, to diagnose and to treat people with a combination of psychotherapy and psychopharmacology. Mm-hmm. And um, having taken advanced training in psychoanalysis, I'm also trained in the ability to do psychoanalytically oriented treatments with people. Um, I've also had an interest in um, family therapy. So I've done a lot of uh, family and couples therapy. And my wife and I wrote a book Mm. in 1987 based on a nationwide study of newlyweds uh, called The First Year of Marriage. I didn't know that. Yeah what to expect, what to accept, and what you can change. She's a great interview also. Okay. <laughs> and um, so she's a writer and I'm a psychiatrist. Somebody thought that would be very cute to bring us together. And, and that turned out to be a great book. That's a whole nother topic we can talk about. What is the name of the book? The First Year of Marriage, What to Accept, What to Expect, What to Accept, and What You Can Change for a Long and Lasting Relationship. Oh, okay. and, I love um, that topic. Yeah, phenomenal. It was was actually one of the first at the time to discuss uh, the developmental process of becoming a couple and what the kind of stages are that people go through. At the time, my mentor was Dan Stern, who was the person at Cornell who was working on the developmental stages of babies and mommies Mm. becoming babies and mommies and the dances they do. Mm -hmm. And he suggested to me, um, he said, Sandy, why don't you do the developmental process of man and woman becoming husband and wife? And I said, well, Dan, that sounds kind of interesting. He said, you can start with Adam and Eve. I said, that's very cute. (laughs) He said, you can use God as your co-author. I love that. I said, my wife's probably a better writer. He said, careful. (laughs) You've got stiff competition. Anyhow, so um, so I've done a lot of couples couples work, but also uh, individual work. In the beginning, uh, there wasn't that much psychopharmacology that we had at our disposal. Mm-hmm. So um, there were a couple of medications that worked that worked maybe eighty percent of the time mm-hmm. for eighty percent of the symptoms. But when patients came in uh, who were extremely, extremely sick, and as psychiatrists, we got people who were very, very sick. Uh, Hospitalizations in those days were three months. This was trying to keep somebody out of a hospital who was very sick. You couldn't tell somebody that 
oh, these medications are only going to work 80% of the time and there are a lot of side effects and there's only going to treat, leave you 80% treated. That would be full disclosure. Oh. But you couldn't tell that to somebody who was in the, in the depths of doubt right. and couldn't believe in anything to begin with. Right. So you had to basically tell them, um, yes, we have a potion here that's going to get you well. So in the beginning, it felt almost like being a bit of um, a bit of a charlatan mm. to have to convince somebody. Right. And this is just parenthetically. Um, it's when I also became aware. I hope I'm doing okay here. Yes, you're great. But it's when I also became aware of the fact that in depression, that there was a linkage, a relationship between depression and belief or the capacity for belief. I remember when because, you taught me this. Yeah, I remember people, this. Because when people became depressed, I became struck that they lost the capacity to believe in themselves, in in life, um, and in the ability for treatment. They they all developed that syndrome from uh, they have in the Wizard of Oz where each of those characters says to Dorothy, "I don't think there's going to be anything in that bag of tricks that the wizard will have for us." Right. Uh, and that was the beginning of a whole other little sidebar here of. of um, the, the relationship between belief and, and spirituality and depression and mood. But at any rate, you had to basically put, put folks on your shoulders and let them borrow whatever belief you could convince them of. Right. And at the time, it wasn't full disclosure. And it wasn't like today where we have such a wonderful armamentarium of things that we can do. We're really nowadays more like, we're like shamans. We can wave our hands and, and make people almost universally better. And that's the secret people don't know. In the beginning, we had to convince them we were okay with very little. Right. Now we have to convince them that we can do almost everything. But at the time, it was ironic because um, as a kid, I used to, my father, who was in menswear business and owned a, uh, a menswear a knitting mill and sold, sold menswear, I would go into work with him as a kid maybe he's a 10 or an 11 year old, and I'd sit in the back with the salesman and the salesman would be on the phone with the buyers. And, and I remember one guy in particular, he was the screamer. He'd be screaming on the other end of the line with somebody. He'd be saying, he'd say, Joe, it's not, it isn't pink, it's purple. Mm. And besides that, pink's going to be the hot color this season anyhow. Mm -hmm. And they'd go on and on like this. He'd say, it's not the color that it looks like right in front of your eyes now. And besides, that's going to be the hot color anyhow. Mm. And, and there'd be six guys in a room, they'd all be screaming the same thing. And then they'd get on the phone with the guys at the mill and they'd say, how dare you send the buyers all pink? <laughs> uh -huh. So I'd be sitting there listening to this <laughs> and I realized I'm never, ever going to be a salesman. I could not possibly lie bald face to people like that. Yeah. And I asked my father once, I said, how could they do that? He said, well, you want to know something, Benny? None of us can have such, um, what do you call it, aesthetic grandiosity mm. as to know in six months what people are going to want, want to wear. Mm. And the fact of the matter is, in six months, they may well want to wear pink. Right. We can never possibly tell where people's heads are going to be. And I thought that's very wise. As I was sitting there with patients and having to sell them on a medication that I only thought was 80% good, right. I had that guy's voice in my mind. And I wow. was, as I was telling patients, don't worry, this stuff 
isn't pink, it's purple. And besides that, it's going to do you as well as purple. It doesn't really matter. Right. So all that stuff that you thought was the worst thing you'd ever heard in your life actually turned out to be what allowed you to sort of stretch things a little bit. But as time went by, um, we've lived through a couple of decades of of research in the brain, and it's really been quite miraculous. And although there's a lot of skepticism that people have about fiddling with with their brains with with drugs, and I I share that as an as an innate innate part of all of us that feels you know don't give me drugs. We right. all grew up with that, you know. Right. But the fact is, um, God has been unusually good to us, and we have at our disposal maybe five different classes of medications, and we can target mood, and we can target cognition, mm-hmm. and then we can target more subtle forms of of mood and anxiety and energy. Right. And um, so the kind of work that I have found myself doing over time is what I call psychotherapeutic psychopharmacology or psychotherapy guided psychopharmacological therapeutics. What does that mean? It means that I, I don't do a 15 minute kind of psycho. Right. pharmacology. There are those places. In fact, most of the psychiatry in the country happens in clinics where you would come in. I don't want to, I'm not disparaging it right? because it's where most people get treated and it is the cost effective form of treatment where you'll go in and you'll fill out a long checklist of symptoms. And so by the time you walk into the doctor's office, he's already seen a whole laundry list of symptoms and he will then basically have almost have the formula that he's going to prescribe for you before you open your mouth. But in my my world, I still do very long interview with somebody Mm -hmm. and I use the finding out about your symptoms to really get to understand you. Because right. each of these symptoms may be buried in a whole story. And as can, you I, know, can I add something to that? Yeah, absolutely. I want to add that when I met you for the first time, the fact that you didn't do it in 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, and you gave me, I think it was two and a half to three hours of intake. First mm-hmm. of all, it gave me hope that you really cared because you're spending the time with me. Mm-hmm. Second of all, it also gave me hope he's going to understand because he heard me out and he asked almost every single question needed in order to diagnose me. So when I left, I left with a sense of real hope of, oh, he's going to get this right. It's not just, here's a prescription. And you were very clear and you went through step by step explaining the different reactions to what I'm seeing and what I'm feeling and the why behind it, which gave me so much strength every single time I went through an episode of a panic attack or extreme depression. I was hearing your voices explaining it to me in my mind and it helped me every single day besides the fact that I knew that you told me we're going to work with a cocktail of different things. We're going to see what works, what doesn't work. Nothing is right away. And the fact that you gave me so much much time, I think was much of my hope to recover. You are really pretty amazing that you remember all of that. <laughs> I do. Because, because you throw a lot of things. I, I really use the spitball approach and you throw a lot of things <laughs> at the wall. But hearing all that out in the detail that you just 
mentioned gives people the sense that you really are hearing and really getting on the inside of what it is their experiences. And when you tie it all together at the end um, and you say, hey, listen, the sleep problem and the and the focusing problem and the appetite problem and the mm-hmm. sex problem and all these things, right. which people really don't see it all tied together right and then you tie it all together and you say lo and behold what you thought was was so unusual and i say i hate i hate to tell you i know that you feel that you are an unusual person Mm -hmm. and everything about you is unusual but this condition you have is actually right out of the textbook right so this actually what you think is the most extraordinary actually is the least extraordinary right and it's it's right down the center of the fairway and so that actually is really eye-opening for folks and you can do that when you really take the time to really listen to it very carefully Mm -hmm. and when you then say this is how i think i would go about treating it, it it gives it more authority um, and you're not just throwing some medicine. You, you then have the ability to say, and this is why I would use this medication, because it would be especially good for that symptom. Exactly. And it would avoid that side effect. Right. So um, so this kind of really listening carefully pays off. And as time goes by and... Um, the nature of the treatment is that certain symptoms will respond right away mm-hmm. and certain symptoms will take a little bit longer. And so uh, because the treatment of depression takes um, a full three months mm-hmm. for these medications to work fully, right. then um, you've already set all that up right from the beginning that um, your sleep may respond right away, but the existential dread that you have in the morning may not respond until month three completely. So we're not going to think that what we're doing is a failure because um, you're eating better and you're functioning better at work and you're sleeping better, but you still wake up in the morning and don't know why you want it should go on with your life. Right. So, um, so there's a lot of, lot of aspects to the experience that you really want to um, have a patient come away with, as you said, so that down the line, it still plays in their head. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of patients who at some point, they will think they will come off the medications. Right. And they may come to rely on other strategies for maintaining their mood. Right. Um, having brought down the intensity of symptoms um, um, pharmacologically, people are able to utilize other, you might say, uh, what's called technologies of the self, like yoga and meditation, right. which may get swept away when symptoms are in the uh, zero is nirvana and 10 is hell, then when it's up in the seven, eight, nine, ten range, meditation and yoga kind of gets swamped. Impossible. Impossible. Right. When you bring down, when you use the pharmacology early on, bring down the symptoms to the four, five, six range. Those others uh, really prove to be invaluable. Right. And now you can get things down to the two, three, four range. Right. So when you pull back the medication, you now have the benefits that you have accrued to yourself with cognitive behavioral therapies 
and with yoga and with meditation. And in fact, it's always my uh, little, um, one of the things I also don't tell patients is that midway through the treatment, I'm going to really, really, really tell them, you really have to go to go, go and get into a yoga class now. It's the only thing that'll save you. Knowing that after we pull back the medication, this will be life-changing. For exactly. Them. I want to tell so, you that you told me that in the beginning. Oh, yeah? That's what yeah. was, that was so refreshing. Yeah. I remember when I came to you, I wanted the medication, but I was afraid of it. Like you said, people told you no medication, no medication. You'd be grow up and saying medication is bad, medication bad. It's, it's addictive. And I knew I needed something. At that point, I knew I needed something, but I, I kept on saying, so will I need it forever? Will I need it forever? And your words I say till today, sometimes you need to get on it in order to get off of it. And you explained that to me. And you explained that to me that, that exactly what you said before, that when you are at a 10 or a seven and you're fighting, you're battling, there's no way you can relax into yoga. And you told me you're going to go to yoga, you're going to go to meditation, you're going to start therapy, and it's going to be a cocktail of healing. It's not one thing. And I think what is so unique about you as a doctor, a psychiatrist, that you introduce that in the beginning to the patient and you tell them that it's it's not all or nothing. You, you have to find the balance. You have to find what works for you. And you have to also do the emotional work. It's not enough to just pop pills because pop pills will numb the symptom, but won't fix the problem. It saddens me to think if I'm the only guy who's dealt telling patients this. So I'm hoping that there's a lot of us out there. However, I do know that as medicine has changed, Pete doctors are under more and more time, time limitations. Mm -hmm. And I just personally have um, committed myself to really finding out, you know, what is the right, what is the formula that actually will work to solve this particular problem. So when people come in, um, frequently the first things that they'll tell you because they're thinking very depressed thoughts about treatment, they'll say, I don't want to be on these medications forever. And uh, I don't want to be addicted to them. And um, Or the side so effects of them. The side effects. So right. you answer, you give, you give legitimate answers, but at some point you have to point out those are all, those, those are all depressed thoughts. Yeah. When somebody right. says to me, I don't want to be on these forever. The first thing I say is I can't help myself anymore. I say, you only have to be on these for 50 years. At least it was on in a day past 50 years. It says right on the on the label. So um, so they all look at me. Like, so, so for the first time, you can get somebody who's depressed, like either smiling or looking at it. Like, I like you're that. Crazy. Yeah, or like you're crazy. So it's very helpful for somebody who's been going around thinking they're crazy to look at you like, oh, he's crazy. <laughs> But these are all, and then you can point out to somebody that all the thoughts you're having about the treatment are the symptoms that we want to treat. Right. That you're having all the most negative, you're going to be dependent on it. Right. You're going to be, uh, it's going to make you um, a zombie. Or, so um, the, the fear factor um, of anxiety. But as you go through this, um, behavioral changes like, like yoga or meditation or even prayer aren't so easy for a lot of people. A lot of people would like to have a pill kind of... Sit off, yeah. To some extent, the fact that it takes an extended period of time for these treatments to really take hold um, give us a chance to um, really work together to try to make some uh, uh, changes in a, in a life that can be really be life-changing. Again, in the old days, people would be in the hospital for three months Right. Automat automatically. For Nowadays, depression? For depression? Yeah. Really? Yeah, for depression for three months because 
in the middle of the treatment, um, people would still be, depression is like a, it's like a sine wave. It waxes and wanes. You may feel a little bit better today, a little bit worse tomorrow. So you could make a plan today to go have a business meeting and tomorrow you'd fall flat on your face and you can't, you can't open your mouth. Right. So when you were in the hospital, we would carefully monitor what kind of meetings you were planning. Mm-hmm. And um, if you were going to go be meeting with your potential Bashert, right? Right. On a date, we would say, uh-uh, not a good idea. You might be right. blowing your future. Why right. don't you wait until you're really better? Because you don't know on a, on a call Monday whether you're really going to be able to keep it on Thursday. Oh. So don't make any plans that you can't cancel. Okay. And as a result, you know, we really discourage folks from making any important life decisions until they're at the end of the three or three and a half months. So in the hospital, we could really do that carefully because we, we, people had to sign out. Right, right. <laughs> so, wow. But in nowadays, it's a nine day almost max to be in the hospital. So you yeah. have to really set up the rehab program with the patient. That means signing a medical leave of absence from work and making sure that folks realize that they may feel better today, but they may not feel good tomorrow. And don't make plans that you can't bow out of Mm -hmm. and don't blame yourself and treat what you have like it's a bad pneumonia Mm -hmm. that may take you a few weeks to get better and you will be better. It's just that this thing takes some time. Can I ask you a question on... The hospital stay, the people that go nowadays for the nine-day treatment, is it because they had a manic episode, because they were suicidal? What makes somebody say, I need the hospital nowadays? Um, It could be that this was a first-time kind of break of some sort, and so they may be acutely suicidal. It could be that they have been down and depressed for so long at home that the families, good families, have gotten exhausted. Mm. And they need the break and they need the patient to be hospitalized so it can be clarified for them that, yes, you have done everything you can, Mm -hmm. but the patient has a real condition. It's not just a condition of you giving them more chicken soup. Most people don't know what the condition is. So they have um, inadequate expectations about it. Right. So those nine days, which really aren't enough time to do anything but get somebody diagnosed and get something started and get them back out with their outpatient, get them patched up, right. is sometimes just enough time for the families to catch their breath. Wow. So, I know that. Um, yeah. So in fact, an exhausted family mm-hmm. is a well-intentioned people who can no longer bear um, someone is itself one of the key diagnostic features of a major depression mm. as opposed to a mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N. Oh, okay. If someone's mourning, Mm-hmm. People go over to you and they say, Jesus, I feel terrible for your loss. And right. You pay a shiver call, people go over and then the person may talk about the person they've lost. In a shiver call, somebody is talking about something different every five minutes. For people mm-hmm. that don't know what a shiva call is, because we have a lot of non-Jews on this, uh, uh, shiva is seven days after we lose a close one, a father, a mother, a sister, a brother, a child. Um, we sit for seven day in mourning and we have visitors come to give condolences. So anybody who's visited someone who's lost a close close relative or a close loved one knows that 
when they go to visit such a person, they may be deeply in grieving one minute and the next minute maybe you may be laughing and talking about some funny incident. So the mood is going up and down like a roller coaster, mm -hmm. but you can relate to it all. Right. And the person relates to you. And the usual rule of thumb is follow the person's mood. Mm -hmm. When you're with somebody who's in a a major depression, on the other hand, there is no going up and down. The person is in an unrelenting, deep, dark state. There is no laughing about it. And as a result, you become, as a caring person, you get fatigued and worn exhausted out. and worn out. And, and nothing so to give. Nothing, and there's nothing to give because there is nothing, no help that is being received. And so it's often when the families are totally exhausted that they'll finally bring somebody in for the treatment because their own grandiosity has been exhausted that they can't help. So I tell residents that, that the exhaustion of the family is a key is a key symptom. So if you are treating somebody, a patient who is telling you that they have somebody at home, uncle so-and-so or grandpa is then exhausting them and they can't take it anymore, get grandpa into treatment. He has a depression, needs treatment. You will help your patient, you will help grandpa, and then we will, and if you, the resident, don't understand this, we will discuss it later. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In the meantime, mm -hmm. get the treatment going. But um, so depression is different than mourning. Right. So the take-home messages really are, number one, depression is treatable. People don't realize it. It isn't mourning. Mm -hmm. It isn't appropriate for any stage of life. Because it is deep, it is dark, it is unrelenting. It isn't appropriate if you have cancer. It isn't appropriate if you are on the doorstep of dying or you have made great losses in your life. Mourning is appropriate, oh. but, not, but not depression. So can I, wait, I have a very important question right here, mm -hmm. right here. And I don't want to forget mm -hmm. it. So you're mm -hmm. saying there's a difference between depression and, and a deep sadness of a loss. Can someone... Major, major difference. So can someone go into deep clinical depression from a loss, from breast cancer, from um, losing a child, God forbid? Can someone go into that from mourning into deep depression? Because there is a milder form of depression called dysthymia, D-Y-S-T-H-Y-M-I-A. Maybe we can talk about this distinction later another mm -hmm. time. Dysthymia is a milder form of depression. It's not the kind that you are in bed with the covers over your head and the blinds closed and you can't get out of bed. That earns you a trip to the hospital, mm -hmm. right? But dysthymia is a milder form. Your high-functioning people are still working, but they are carrying a weight around on their shoulders. They are living on the cloudy side of the street. And although if things are going right, they are able to live on the crest of the wave, the mm -hmm. tiniest little, um, what's the expression, molehills turn into mountains. Mm -hmm. So um, at work, they are irritable. They have quick flaring tempers. Mm -hmm. They are more prone to things like alcohol or other things to try to raise other distractions to try to raise their spirits, mm -hmm. like having a quick affair. Dysthymia, we used to think of as like a depressed personality, except that now we know that there are medications. Uh, when Prozac came out, that was the first of the medications that sort of treated these milder depressions. Mm -hmm. Now, because one out of three of the people that you know are walking around with a mild depression, when um, 
one of uh, these tragedies affects them, it is possible that that will push them into a deeper form of the mm -hmm. depression. Mm -hmm. And um, they will have a protracted mourning or have more trouble pulling out of their mourning. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice that on the condolence calls and all. Somebody who isn't responding to the visits and they are just more intensely grieving there's nothing wrong with grief right. and um, um, we are internalizing someone in grief we're having an inner discussion with somebody when we're grieving but if you think about it all the people you've known who you've seen grieving there's a broad spectrum and some of those people will need to be have been so shocked or traumatized are having some post-traumatic stress from the loss or maybe even have been pushed into a depression from the loss. Mm. So the problem with being in a depression when you have a loss is you can't mourn when you're depressed. <gasps> you know, wow, you can't so... mourn when you're depressed. So you're never you're ending it. Yeah. So in depression, you're just playing the same thing over and over in your head like a broken record. And you and in mourning, you're playing it, but you're learning from it. You're internalizing it. You're going through those steps of Kubler-Ross where you're first you're in protest and in anger and then gradually making your peace and some reconciliation and then acceptance and really internalization and then maybe you make a dedication to the person who you've lost but you're you're actually growing from the loss mm -hmm. um in in depression you're just stuck mm -hmm. and just in a deep and we've all seen people who have made had a had a terrible loss somebody i saw recently who lost a two-year-old who <gasps> is still um uh you know a year later through a birthday party for this deceased two-year-old and made everybody come and wow. put on put on birthday hats and, wow. and they had to sing happy birthday wow so this is this is a really uh, is that healthy a, that's a highly pathological form of um of mourning i think everybody can see that this woman's still deeply deeply depressed and, oh so it's not uh, a good thing it's not like oh no, she's, uh, yeah, she's stuck so, she's stuck in that that so the patient was asking me my patient was asking me what can we do because this was a sister-in-law mm -hmm. i said you got to get this woman into treatment yeah and they said how i said well the first thing is you might want to point out to her she seems deeply unhappy mm -hmm. so she said well of course she's unhappy she had this loss i said well yeah but that kind of depth of unhappiness doesn't seem help anybody right right, right. i mean and right. so you can still people don't realize you can still mourn even though you're not in a deep deep state of depression but this is different because this is a matter of um i need to i need to suffer how can i go on living while mm -hmm. my child has has died so th that's a different kind of so depression will accentuate your um, not just your sense of grief, but your sense of needing to suffer. So, um, and is this something medication helps? The medication will definitely help you to get over it. But um, um, we we started off by talking about how one loses belief in right. depression. Right. So you you lose belief, you might say, in the good and the forgiving God. Yeah. But you maintain a kind of belief in the in the demanding, you might say, and the angry and the um, accusatory and the um, killer God, you might right. say. 
So that's a different kind of, uh, you know, we should all of us be on the lookout. You know, one goes and tries to publicize such things on the air with you and the work you're doing, not because they're downers, but because um, there aren't enough mental health workers. There aren't enough doctors. Um, The number of people we now know, now that this is not as stigmatized as it used to be, is enormous. And so each one of us really, you know, everybody put up your right hand. We right. are all deputized. Right. So um, anybody who's had this condition becomes a kind of beacon of light just by virtue of the fact that they were down and now they're, they've come out of it and, and light is emanating from them right. once again. Right. So um, because, because it's a mixed crowd we have, because the spirit right. is shining once again, mm-hmm. I have a belief that... Um, People are going to be, other people are going to see it. And consciously or unconsciously, they will wonder, well, what happened to you? So right. everyone who has been treated is a gift from God to other people. Right. That they will somehow wonder, you know, well, and at some point they'll say, what happened to you? You used right. to be so down. Right. Hmm? And right. I tell people as they're getting treated and they get out towards that three and a half month point, mm-hmm. I point out to them, you know, you will be a beacon of light. People will come over to you and say, what's happened? I like this that. This is part of, yeah, this is part of your grad, uh, graduation discussion. I like that. And um, if you choose to so embrace it, then you'll have an opportunity to turn your grieving couple of months into some benefit for others. You'll and giving back. By giving back, yeah. you'll see a co-worker who's mm-hmm. walking around and, and, and you'll have an opportunity because of where you were. You'll be able to say, hey, I was where you were at. And you just look down in the dumps and you don't need to be. So I think that really folks who've been through this are really the front line. Right. And uh, because there ain't enough of us. Share your story. Share your experience. Share your story. And this is how the front line will be advanced, really. Uh, It won't be from the generals. It'll be from the foot soldiers. I have a bunch of questions if I have more time. Do you have a a few more minutes? A couple minutes, Okay. I have a few fundamental questions, if you can answer. You told me um, nine years ago that... Depression and anxiety come together. They're sisters, brothers. They're always linked to each Mm -hmm. other. Can you explain in the brain what that means and why is depression and anxiety together? When people come in, sometimes the mood will be, depression is a misnomer for a condition for which the mood may be depressed or anxious. There is a cognitive component. Usually the thoughts are very um, uh, ruminative and negative, characterized by difficulty having positive thoughts and an emphasis on the negative. And then there are somatic signs and symptoms like difficulty sleeping and appetite and enthusiasm. So you have those three categories. But in terms of anxiety, um, so if you're thinking negative thoughts, you're going to feel anxious. You may also feel depressed. Um, If you take your anxious thoughts a little bit further, um, in some respects, sometimes anxiety is a defense against depression. Mm -hmm. People will be anxious. To get over it? Well, the adrenaline of anxiety Mm -hmm. will actually block the feelings of depression for some people. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that I have some folks, when you begin to treat them for depression, they will get suddenly extremely anxious. I remember I came into your office and I said, I feel 
my toes. I wake up in the morning and my toes are always twingling. And you said, oh, that's a good sign because mm. it means that the medication is starting to work and the anxiety starts with the toes, but it means that depression right. is subsiding it's a little kind bit. Of lifting. Yeah. So, and sometimes you'll treat the anxiety because in the beginning, sometimes anxiety will be so great that we'll use the anti-anxiety drugs, which will work rather quickly. Mm-hmm. And so somebody will now not be tremendously or overwhelmingly anxious, but they'll come in, they'll say, doc, I am just so depressed. And then we interpret that the medication has unmasked the depression. And no, the medication has not made you depressed. It's unmasked it. And the correct thing to do is to treat right through it. So some people, because the antidepressants will actually work on anxiety as well, because they will quiet down, you might say, the adrenaline that's surging. Mm -hmm. And um, so people can misinterpret because their anxiety, because that the, the adrenaline had been keeping them pumped up and masking their depression, Mm -hmm. when you kind of start to quiet down the body's anxious reactions, which have been practically killing them, Mm. because they've been feel like their heart's been thumping. Right, right. Stomachs have been tight and everything. But then they begin to think, oh, this medication is makes me want to kill myself. Mm -hmm. So you don't want anybody to kill themselves, but the medication is not making you depressed. Medication may be treating the anxiety, Mm-hmm. but it is unmasking the depression. Mm-hmm. And so you have to treat right through it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you may have to raise the dosage a little bit, go a little bit faster. But remember, the treatment takes three months. So in the beginning, the anxious, the first couple of weeks, the anxious symptoms may respond faster mm-hmm. because that's about quieting down the uh, the body's adrenal response, the fight and flight response. Mm-hmm. But it takes a little bit longer for the medications to get to the parts of the brain where the depressive reactions seem to get cued, right. or rather where the ability to be happy is suppressed. Right. So um, so that's that's why you will often see anxiety relieved relatively quickly, but depression suddenly unmasked. It actually makes the first couple of weeks of treatment a little bit risky, and you have to watch right. somebody carefully right? because suddenly the anxiety is relieved, but now suddenly somebody may suddenly feel suicidal. Exactly. And it is, it is a misnomer. I know some people think that some of the medica- antidepressants are suicidal inducing. In my experience, that's incorrect. They're okay. not, but they have unmasked something and you have to stay in touch with the patient. They have to know what's going on and you have to treat right through it. Right. And you will treat right through it and right. that will be relieved within a week. But you may have to give them more ang- anti-anxiety medication like some clonopin just to kind of quiet that down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Better to be a little bit stuporous Mm-hmm. and not not suicidal, but to get through that week. Again, in the old days, we had people in the hospital, you'd keep somebody in a slightly stuporous state for two right. weeks. Wow. So we would just, you know, just take a vacation of the mind, just right. sleep your way through it. Right, until and, the medicine um, kicks in and takes until over. It, until it kicks in. Right. Nowadays, you have to be very careful that you explain, explain, explain to people. Right. And um, because everybody's doing this um, 
I remember in the beginning, back in when I started my training, they uh, we became aware that in China, um, you know, people get patched up in hospitals and they'd all go home, and everybody in the family became like the nurses. Right. And they called that Chinese medicine. You get immediately discharged, uh, and the uh -huh. family were all nurses. Uh -huh. And little did we suspect that we were going to all be practicing Chinese medicine here, <laughs> that everybody was going to get patched up in hospitals, and you were going to be sent home. The way we phrase it is to be taken care of by your doctor in the outpatient setting. Okay. But what it actually is to be taken care of by your family. Right. And yourself. And yourself. Which is so. the number one. How quickly do you check up on them once they come to you? Like, what's the, what do you recommend for people that are listening that starting, they're, they're thinking about going to a psychiatrist? What would you recommend the cycle of visiting to psychiatrists? In the beginning, because, um, you know, in the first visit, you're being diagnosed, you're being, having explained to you a lot of stuff that you may know nothing about. Um, in the first visit, some psychiatrists would break up an initial visit into two visits because it may take, you know, just to make the diagnosis would be visit number one and then to come back to go over the treatments and to get them started. Mm -hmm. And then because you're starting some new medications, which may include an antidepressant, maybe an anti-anxiety medication, mm -hmm. they may want to see you the following week just to see how you're faring. Are you feeling more depressed? or indeed is the medication working and less depressed? Are you using the anti-anxiety medications correctly? Do we have to go a little faster, a little bit slower? It's every psychiatrist guess about how quickly or slowly to go depending mm -hmm. on your circumstances. So in the beginning, it's not unusual to be in con contact with somebody maybe once a week for a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. just until the medication is up and running. And then you rather quickly can cut, but once somebody's familiar with how to use these medications, mm -hmm. um, then you can, and they're not difficult to learn how to use. Right. The anti-anxiety medications, clonopin, those types of drugs, very easy. Right. Um, once the antidepressant is built up over a week or two to its therapeutic dose, pretty standard. So it's not that tough. And within a short period of time, you can be back to, let's say, once a month um, to see somebody. And um, and then once everything's kind of rolling, most people I see in maybe three-month periodic follow-up for medication checks. And you can do a lot of that, um, some, some of the medication check on the phone. You really should see somebody every, depending on the medications, every three, six, nine months. Mm -hmm. um, just to, because there are things you see when you eyeball somebody that you might miss right, when right. it's just on the phone, even though there's telepsychiatry today, but that's right. another topic. But I'd say in the beginning, you know, you should be in a little more contact. The problem is that for half the country, half the psychiatric medication in the country is prescribed by internists, mm. non-psychiatrists. Wow. So they are going to give you 20 milligrams of Lexapro or something like that. And they'll say, come, they, they don't have the time to see you again for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. So they're going to give you just something that's the easiest, easiest to give you. Wow. Not anything that's going to require any fancy. They're not doing psychotherapy guided psychopharmacology. Psychotherapy, you know? Right. So they're just doing, but they are the ones who are there. Right. Psychiatrists don't go into the hinterlands, you know? So. Um, but that's a big problem. <laughs> 
You can translate that. So, um, no problem. Dr. Powell could put his hand up in the yeah, air. Yeah, and says, what can we do? Right, what can we do? So How we often to, do you take your, when you're, let's say your patients are on it for a year or two and they're like, okay, I don't like the side effects, I'm feeling better. How often do you see your patients doing the work of going to therapy, yoga, meditation, and they can actually get off medication and be okay? What's the percentage? Well, after it takes three months to write the bottom line, see what the formula is that works, and somebody is hopefully back to, to themselves. I take that back. They're better than themselves. Right. Because most people were schlepping along some anxiety and depression beforehand. Right. They're better than they were. Right. So at that point, you want to let maybe three, six months, maybe nine months pass and just see what they do with, you know, now that you've revved up the engine, let, let's see what people do. And that's actually a very rewarding period because you see people do all kinds of things that they weren't before. Mm. I know one pe person who started a whole audio blogging site for depression. And so creative stuff starts to happen. At some point, you would begin to ask the question, why don't we cut back? And um, you would do it slowly mm -hmm. and step by step, almost with the reverse. With monitoring. With monitoring. Maybe if you were on, you know, because you would do it the reverse of the way you went on it. Maybe you'd cut back 25% of, of a medication and you'd wait a few weeks to see how that affected you. Mm -hmm. So a few things can happen. One, when you make a small cutback, uh, you feel the difference. Mm -hmm. In which case you say, uh-uh, no, let's go back on it. And then you stay on that for a few more months and then you try it again. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll cut back to um, a low dose, and when you go from a low dose to zero, you'll say, um, no, I feel that. I feel the difference. So mm -hmm. you stay on a low dose as mm -hmm. a maintenance dose. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll go off of it and you'll be okay, but because the, most of these conditions are recurrent, mm -hmm. but the medications are prophylactic, Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll stay on a low dose as a prophylactic. And to that, it depends a little bit on you and your lifestyle. Right. So if I'm treating somebody who most of the people I'm going to see in New York, because they're high functioning people, they can't afford to get knocked out for a couple of months. Right. If you were um, a moonshiner up in the Ozarks, and all you're doing is sitting around and waiting for those potato spuds to grow to throw, mm -hmm. put into that moonshine machine. Maybe, you know, if you were knocked out, you know, right. for three months, who would care? Right. But most of the people you see in New York City, you know, 99% of capacity doesn't cut it. They want right. to work hard and, and right. love hard. At that point, when people ask me, what do you think I should do? Far be it for me to tell somebody to stop something completely that might expose them to a painful condition. I'm very phobic about my patient's depressions. Dr. So, Parker, did you yeah. ever suffer yourself from mental health? I've had touches of that. So I have a little sense of not as deep as and as complicated as patients of mine have had, but I can I got a sense of of what people may may go through. And I've sat with people for so long and have, you know, empathized with people for so long. My question was leading to do you get what we're going through, even though you understand the chemicals in the brain? Uh, but I think I think I think so. You think so? I think I think I get I think I get 
you know, the darkness. I've been, I've been through things in my own life. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think it's quite like if you're familiar with Rav Solove- uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik's book, um, Lonely Hearted Man. You no, familiar with that? No. So he wrote um, a really quite remarkable document in which he really describes what was probably his own either depression or kind of crisis of faith. Um, and maybe they're the same, but, um, you know, he described it as, as two Adams, Adam one and Adam two from the mm-hmm. Bible. Mm-hmm. For those who are listening there, uh, if you remember your Bible, there's the Adam who uh, it bounces up sort of all perky and is naming the animals and is industrious and is goes to work every day. Right. But there's another version of Adam in which God is sort of almost hiding and God comes to him and says, where are you? Mm-hmm. And Adam is almost hiding and, you know, God has to go find him and he's not in a very good state. And the rabbi identifies these two parts of himself. One is the person who's known in his community and and is doing all kinds of things. But there's another part of himself that occasionally has a voice whispering in his ear that just says, where are you? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what what are you doing? And so we all of us have those moments, right? Right, right. And so, um, and those can be very deep and very profound. I think that those are, um, we can talk more about that. Um, and that's really, what connects you to the patient? Do you think that that's I think, I think that that more than connects you to the patient. And it's um, what some patients, there are some people who get into that kind of a depth when they are in depression. Mm-hmm. And there are others, you might say, who almost avoid that kind of a depth. Right, yeah. When they're in. in other words, there are those who have written about the deep, dark night of the soul. Right. Which is a form of depression. Uh, there are those who think that as a result of that, you, you wrestle with um, a form of spirituality that is, when you come out of it, makes you even uh, spiritually more solid if you, when you integrate that. But not everybody goes through that. I had that. Not, I had yeah. that. Yeah, I was very disconnected from God. You know, I, I was very, I was raised very God-fearing, Orthodox, and there was a time that I just didn't see God. I didn't see God. I didn't believe God existed. It was hard for me to fathom that a God can do something so dark. And mm-hmm. and there was so there was such a lack of spirituality and growth inside me that I almost hoped there was no God because this can't be real. And then there was a awakening moment that I said, God, if you are there, prove it to me by me getting healthy. It was my little like vow. I remember where I was standing mm-hmm. and I said, God, I'll forever pay it forward if you heal me because this darkness is so dark and it's so debilitating and it's, I can't take one more day of it. I just want to heal. It was a process of healing, but the process was up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. But when I got, I, I will never forget those words that I said because I, I really meant it. I was seeking something. I think when we're so down depressed and there's no hope, we, we want something higher than us because we're, mm-hmm. we're depleted. So we're hoping that there's mm-hmm. something, there's a, there's a higher energy. So not everybody believes in God, but 
people believe in energy. Everybody believes in something else that lifts them. For me, it was God. For somebody else, it's the universe. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But right. it's something greater than us. And mm -hmm. it, and and I find also that deep analytic minds go into depression more often because they can't figure things out. Mm -hmm. Do you see a relationship um, between that? Absolutely. I think it's absolutely. And I think it's really uh, something that you can actually remember the uh, moment or the period mm. that you were actually, I hope you wrote it down, but that you uh, actually just spoke it out here. So that's good. Everybody should listen to that because um, uh, I think that's a really um, it's almost numinous, you know, when you go through a period like that, and because um, you never forget it. And I think it's it's uh, it's soul searing. Yes. S e a r i n g, <laughs> and um, and integrating those two uh, really, I think, changes the person and makes you alert to your next your fellow man's. Uh, some people go, and it's hard to figure, but some people are just geared towards that or have that i think it's a capacity um because it's a very vulnerable state to be in mm -hmm. and some people you'd think how could you not possibly realize what you're going through and but they're like almost watered off and defended i want to touch upon this new book that you're writing um if you can explain i think it's about body mind and soul together what is what is um, the relation it is going to have components it's about um um so you have depression you can cure it and um it's about the fact that depression is um close to 100 percent uh in distinction from when i began and i had to be a charlatan nowadays it's depression is if you do it the way i've been describing it by really understanding what you have and with a vast variety of things that we can do about it. Depression, I haven't gotten into some of the newer things like ketamine and psychedelics, but mm -hmm. but depression should be just about 100% curable mm -hmm. with close to zero side effects. And so- With um, medication, you're saying curable. For, for starters, with medication to get you out of it, but on the road to the medication, there should be, you know, the psycho to get to the psychopharmacology you have to go through a psychotherapeutic process of understanding yourself right. it may not be a psychoanalytic process but it may not need to be because you are so deep into it to start with right mm -hmm. right and um but that in the course of it to get from that as you are walking your biological gradient you find that there are things can only be walked with a psychological gradient like with some cbt Mm -hmm. and with a mind-body gradient, right? The, the medication will not do for you what controlling your own Thoughts. chi will do for you, your own meditation. Mm -hmm. And um, so you can have others shifting, shifting models of the mind and the body totally, although they can be translated into each other mm -hmm. um but in the east they talk about chi and energy mm -hmm. right so which we can translate into the vagus nerve and various things so you can have somebody else work on you like with massage and move your energy around but you can learn how to move handle your energy yourself with things like yoga and things like um uh meditation so yoga in particular is amazing because in yoga you put yourself into a stressful situation right? right you create a kind of artificial stress 
And then lo and behold, you're breathing deeply. And so you're relaxing yourself, right? Right. So you are conditioning yourself Mm -hmm. that when I am feeling stressed, I automatically go into relaxation state. This is amazing, right? That when I am stressed, I automatically go into a relax. I am Pavlovian, like a Pavlovian dog. I'm retraining myself that when I feel stress, normally when you feel stress, you just get more stressed. Right. But instead, when I feel stress, I go into a relaxation state. Mm -hmm. I deep breathe. Mm -hmm. I maybe go into a posture and I completely change my mental set when I'm stressed. Mm -hmm. So this is an amazing, so as anybody who's listening, you could not, you know, um, if you were wondering for a sign from God, what should I do to help myself? Right. Right. Help myself deal with stress in my life. Right. This is it. Right. Right. (laughs) So, um, so that is, um, and, you know, we've touched here a little bit on, on how issues of uh, the soul come in, but this is so individual in particular right. that it's probably not a general discussion, right. although it's something that has interested me um, tremendously, and I've been in study groups for 25 years about this subject, but that's for another time. Is it going to be in your book? Um, it is going to be in my book. Uh, the book's going to be, a lot's going to be on the pharmacology. Mm-hmm. And then there's going to be a section on the very basic uh, meditation techniques, mm-hmm. um, which is going to be uh, basically a do this now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do okay. this absolutely right now. Mm-hmm. And, and you're going to get points and prizes if you do. Mm-hmm. You're going to get a coupon to go to an ice cream store. If you From you? From you? From the book. From the book. From the book. <laughs> if you do it and you're honest, you can get a coupon. Wow. And um, and then there's also going to be something on, on the uh, psycho-spirituality of it because if you do meditation, you may actually find yourself wandering into a, the, the real meditative state has a little, um, well, it's going to have a little bit of a discussion about what you described as those numinous moments. So we used to call, Abraham Maslow used to call these aha moments that right. you have in therapy. He called right. them aha moments. So I've come to understand that those aha moments, which happen, you know, uh, why should you pray? Because you can get more of those aha moments. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. You can do them in therapy too. Right. The, the, or a meditation. Prayer. Right. Or meditation, but the meditation and the prayer boys knew about mm-hmm. this a long time before right. the rest of the psychology guys figured right. it out. Reading people like Jung, there's a lot of reason to believe that that those numinous moments, those numinous spiritual moments, may be the very core of the therapeutic healing process. So, when, um, when is this book coming out? Just finishing up now, and so hopefully, you know, within months, I'm just having my editor read it over, and uh, so uh, but I'll let you know. Yeah, we want to have you on again to just discuss yeah. the book in depth. And okay. do you have a name for the book? Working on a couple of different, okay. different names, you know. So we'll leave but, it for um, next time, the name and, and a little bit deep dive into the book. Yeah. I want to ask you two more questions. What would be two tips you would give someone that is living with someone that is suffering but doesn't want to do the work? How, what would you give the loved one? The, the fundamental two tips that they could do to not come down with the ship or to, or to help them get help when they're in denial or they're not the one who, or yeah. they're afraid to. The number one thing 
is that you can, if somebody's in total disavowal, is that you can point out to them um, out the corner of your number one, not to get into a battle over this. Because if you find yourself getting into a battle over you're depressed, no, I'm not. No. If you find yourself repeating the same thing three times in a row, Mm-hmm. With escalating escalating volume in your voice, like you're talking to a cabbie who doesn't speak your language, then you might as well just back off because of three things. One, the other person's heard you. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they wouldn't be putting up a defensive wall, right? Because mm-hmm. that's what it means. Two, they've heard you and they understand you. Otherwise, there would not be a defensive wall being put up. Even more so, they agree with you or part of themselves agrees with you. But the problem has just been externalized. Now they are fighting with an internal part of themselves projected onto you. So that if you give somebody a piece of advice, like why don't you get a consult or at least, and they start to jawbone you, you can immediately back off and say things like, you have a good point, huh? you agree with them. Mm -hmm. That makes it harder for somebody to disagree with you. So if you make a suggestion and you start to get a defensive reaction, if you have the wherewithal, because most people immediately get defensive themselves, but if you have the wherewithal back off, say, oh, you have a good point, I'm going to think about that. Uh, Leave them holding air, not your neck. Mm -hmm. You follow? (laughs) And the other thing is, the one thing that you can say that might get somebody's attention is, you seem unhappy. Um, you don't have to go into any of the other details. Just uh, And you can do that, I call it, out the corner of your eye. Mm-hmm. Um, not with a frontal assault, but out the corner of your eye. Jeez, you know, you seem so unhappy. And um, because that's almost irrefutable. Mm-hmm. And the spouse will say, well, I am unhappy because you're constantly hocking me about, or of course I'm unhappy because of, uh, you know, the business. So this, I'll give you a reason. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And then you can just say, well, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I know all that. But what I meant was just the, I'm not saying that you're psychotic. You're not unhappy about crazy little Martians. Mm-hmm. All I mean to say is that you're unhappy. It seems to be eating your guts out and, I, you know, I feel for you and, you know, it's, it's, you're unhappy. So you ought to get a consult about that. He said, well, what is a consult going to do about it? And so, um, so the corollary to um, not, not getting into a fight that goes three times louder and louder mm-hmm. and basically just, you know, some point slithering away and saying, oh yeah, I agree with, I, I'll think about it. And pointing out that you're just, you know, unhappy is just to say, oh, yeah, you're probably right about it. When you say disarmingly that, oh, yeah, you're probably right, mm-hmm. right? It gets them thinking. It, all you need to do is get the process kind of thinking. You shouldn't relent, you know, just say, you know. But also, I don't think you need to be consistent. Hmm? Mm-hmm. So if on occasion you want to beat your spouse over the head, yeah. And then on another occasion, you want to come back and say, geez, honey, you've just been so unhappy. I feel for you. You know, so if you want to kind of kamikaze and be inconsistent, that's, I guess that's three things. I believe in inconsistency. Oh, really? That helps? Yeah. I believe in inconsistency. Oh, yeah. Okay. You can catch, remember, you're dealing with the unconscious here. Uh-huh. Internally, there right. is a part of your partner that wants to get well. Right. And you're trying to make alliance with that part. And you're trying but to figure out what will work for them. To make, you're trying to, you're shouting, you're sending in like messages in a bottle. And, mm-hmm. but that part is also being bludgeoned by the same part that you're being bludgeoned, mm-hmm. meaning the depressive part. 
So you're you're trying to speak kindly or shout a message from a distance Mm -hmm. to the part inside that wants to get help. And you should never get nihilistic and think that your messages aren't being heard. Mm -hmm. Hmm? But you should go by the rule of 14, which is that on the 14th try, it will be heard. Is that true? Yeah, but okay. you, know, you just it may be somebody else's fourteenth try, so right. don't be don't give but, um, up. Don't give up. Do not do not give up, and um, because um, uh, there is a, another part of the self that's operating internally that strives for health. Right. Even even though it looks like the part that strives for not health is very very much in prominence. Anyhow. Right. That's it for now. Okay, wait, I have the uh, last question. Uh, last, last question. question. Okay. Last question is, when someone comes to you and they're depleted and they're like, okay, I have no hope, what mm-hmm. is the message of hope that you give them? What's the message of hope you give them? Me? Yeah. That there's always tomorrow. Ah, that's a very good one. I like that. I, so, I don't know if I can do better than that. <laughs> but, oh, so I'll, I'll phrase it better. What does hope mean to you, doctor? I see hope through a prism of, you know, the layers of the uh, unconscious, you know, the subconscious and consciousness. If somebody says to me, you know, there is no hope, it's it's almost like saying there's no God. Mm-hmm. So the correct answer to that is that's what you think. <laughs> mm-hmm. But some so, people really think there is no God and they have hope. That's right. So, but if somebody comes in and says there is no hope, well, it depends what they feel like there's no hope. Sometimes no hope is on the road to making peace about mm-hmm. something. Hmm? Right. I don't think there's any hope in my getting that that girl. And the answer, correct answer might be good riddance. Right, hmm? right. One lady was asked out by a guy who was totally, you know, infinitely written rich gigolo type guy Mm -hmm. i've seen his name in the page and she was so flattered oh well i'm going out with this guy but he's going out with a million different women i said yes so she said i'm not sure there's any hope (laughs) (laughs) i said well okay so she said but i want to go out with him anyhow i said okay well can you go out with somebody with there's no hope so she said i'm not quite so sure so i said well there's one way you might be able to manage it what's that you set a limit on the relationship set Mm -hmm. a limit what do you mean? I said, well, you set the limit at one year. One year, no matter what, come hell or high water, you know, it's over. Mm-hmm. Over. And you tell, you let him know. It's like Cinderella at the ball. When the clock right. strikes 12, you're out of there. Right. So she was doing this. And um, so they were getting close to the ninth month. I said, have you thrown your farewell party? Right. She said, well, what are you talking about? I said, well, it's over in a year, right? Right. She says, well, I wasn't so sure. I said, uh-oh, uh-oh, you said that this was only going to be a year. I think you better stick to your plan. Right. Of course, as she started to plan a farewell party, this guy who was the major gigolo began to get all kinds of, what are you talking about? Nobody's ever left me before. Right. I right. need right. them. Right. So suddenly, um, giving up on all hope became the precondition. You of, know, hope. of hope. Of connection. Of connection to that. But I told her, you know, it was like Tolstoy's thing. I said, you know, the only way that you'll possibly keep him interested is if you, uh, if he sees your back walking out the door. Mm-hmm. So she had to really integrate that that particular lesson that there was that she could keep him interested as long as she would sort of hold this barrier. 
because mm-hmm. it was the nature she had to give up hope in having him to sort of have some of his interest. So that helped to work through that, you know, the idea that he wasn't, the no hope was a signal. Interesting. You know, so sometimes no hope is, you know, is a sign. So I think it really depends. I'm using a slightly kind of, right. you know, playful example but it depends what you know hope is about um with mental health with mental health sometimes hope's about am i going to get over my you know my cancer and Mm -hmm. uh, somebody had consulted a um who um whose wife had you know cancer and they were very religious and i didn't know there was such people but they consulted a seer Mm-hmm. A seer in um is that right? Yeah, a seer in Jerusalem. Yeah. There are people who will function yeah. as seers. Yeah. So the seer said, I don't think she's gonna make it. And they said to me, What do you think? <laughs> I said I said I said, Well, um, you know, I'm not sure, but it sounds like, you know, the issue is in my world isn't always, you know, are you gonna make it? But how are you how are you feeling about this and what are you doing with the time? That you have, right? You know, not 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 with the time that you don't have, and the seer isn't so much important as the uh, as the as the desire that that you two have expressed to sort of be together forever, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, which to me is you know really you know pretty beautiful, and and you don't even know that about each other, and because you're so caught up in the in the things of making life happen and cooking and. Right. Making weddings and all. And, you know, maybe the first time we've actually sat down and, and really declared, but we, you know, just in plain and simple terms, but we want to be together right. forever. It was a funny kind of, I don't know if I'm answering your question. What do you do if somebody says no hope? It's, I guess you make out of it what you can, you know? Do you try to give right. them hope? Well, nowadays when people come in depressed, they have no hope. They right. routinely have no hope. Right. So um, I hear that often. I hear that often. I don't think. I'm different. I'm not going to change. This is going to be forever. Is that 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 bleak? I was in the Philippines. I was in the Peace Corps. There was a farmer that I had helped with a. De- he had a depression, and um, there was a uh, psychiatrist in the Philippines who would, who was there. He'd been at Downstate, and long story short, he had gotten me some antipsychotic medication, which I'd gotten to this farmer. After that, there were a whole bunch of people who showed up at my door looking to get some of that medication because they knew I treated this guy. Mm-hmm. And I had thought that it was a placebo, they, you know, because they knew that some, they didn't know what the medication was. Mm-hmm. But later on, these were native people. These were mm-hmm. people who had kind of pantheistic gods and right. very primitive. And later on, somebody said, no, it wasn't placebo. They don't know what the thing is. But one of the medicine men had extended his whatever over me mm-hmm. and had let out the word that I was a um, kind of a low-grade god who was <laughs> doing battle with certain kind of, you know, impish kind of negative god that had gotten this guy sick. I said, really? <laughs> I had gotten, I had been, I had been deputized. He said, yeah. And he wants to see you. I said, really? And so I went and I participated in the ceremony in which I was defrocked. Oh, really? He took away, he took away because he could see that I was getting wasted away with the uh, my energy. In fact, I wasn't wow. losing a lot of weight. People were showing up. I ran out of the pills. So I gave him whatever I had, the uh, you know, I had cold medicine. I had no cold and sinuses. I gave him whatever I had. Right. And supposedly people got kind of well. So, you know, I I was able to dispense a kind of hope 
but it was only because of, I thought it was because I had some special powers because of what I had done. It turned out it was only because I had had the this aura over me of the shaman. Mm. I was actually given shamanic power, and that's why I had these people came to see me. So I thought a lot about that. You know, people come to see me, and um, but I, I wear a white coat. You know, so I represent an institution, mm-hmm. and I perpetrate um, I perpetrate a myth that I can help people. Right now, it turns out I can. I believe a lot. Right in what right. I do. Right. So where in, early in my career I mentioned to you, I thought I was a charlatan. Right. Right. Now I think um, more of a shaman, right? Because I represent something that people come, now I understand. People come in and they imbue you with a certain kind of, even though they have no hope, they still come to see you, right? Because mm-hmm. they so, really do have hope. So I realize that I put on my. So I don't get this. I don't get complete. Mm-hmm. I don't get the. Um, I don't really totally get the guy who stands behind me, who gives people. I never really got the shaman who imbued me with a kind of power to help these people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, not, right. But they, but they came to my door like nobody's business. Wow. And when he turned off the spigot, Done. they stopped. They stopped. He said wow. I was getting too wasted from it. It was it's too true. exhausting. And he just stopped. He was the first person who imbued me with the power to heal. Wow. And uh, and I didn't even, I hadn't met him at the time. Uh, so it's, now um, people come to my door. So I, um, uh, so I think somewhat it's because of medication and I have a good reputation, but people are um, people without hope. They, they nevertheless have some kind of, it's this larger thing that I don't totally understand. Bigger than and, us. Uh, it's bigger than us. It's it's what medicine moved into and, and took over from this. I hate to say shamanic sounds so so uh, it sounds almost goofy, but it means that the institution. It means our capacity to believe even when we like practically have no hope. Right. I feel right. like when I go to when I, when I go to a doctor, I don't know what he knows and what he doesn't right. know. Right. I sort of just believe he knows something. Somebody's right. imbuing him with power, you know. Right. He knows how to cut your heart open or your leg open. Right. And but it's more than that. You want to believe that he's going to be a a healer. Right. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because um, most psychiatrists won't even talk about this other stuff. It's not even in their they'll laugh the people away because right. it's not in their conversation. I'm actually right. shocked that you're talking about it because yeah. most... Well, like I say, early on, the first, the first thing I realized when I started to practice was that people had, because of depression, they'd lost totally any capacity for hope. And I was schlepping them on my shoulders and right. feeling like I was, you know, like the salesman who was telling right. them that pink was, was beautiful. Yeah. And now I realize that it's much more than just putting them on my shoulders. Right. That, um, in fact, me putting them on my shoulders is the least of it, but that there's this other larger thing that I just happened to, you know, sit in the middle of a, sit in a chair. Right. And people are actually bringing into the office with them. Right. And, uh, and I then play, play out a role and that's a big part of it. I don't know how big, I mean, the medication is for real. Right. Hmm? Right. Yeah. And, um, but also, um, but people want to, um, it's not a placebo. No, I understand. The The placebo is the magic that you think is in the pill. But the, the other thing is what people think um, 
is not just in the doctor, but in the institution. Yeah. In the institution. So I try to straddle two institutions because I think medicine is good, but more people, more people go to yoga. I don't know enough about herbal medicines. Mm -hmm. And if I did, that would be even, I have one colleague who's very, very into herbal Mm -hmm. medicine. And if you're ever interested, I'll give you his name. He knows a lot about it. And there are more people who rely on that than rely on us. Absolutely. It's the new uh, thing now. It is a new thing because people can read up about it. They can have some control over it. And there's no such fear of like the chemicals and my my brain's going to melt. Am I going to start forgetting? Am I going to start to get fat? Am I going to start to... Everybody can become their own expert. They don't have to rely on us. Right. Hmm? Right, right. So, um, what I think it is, what I think the whole relationship between the doctor, the medicine, and the human that's going through it, I think the human is coming to somebody like you, that's an expert, that learned the brain, learned pharmacology, understands the connections and the disconnection, and you give us the tools that say you can do the work and you can heal. You give us permission to heal. And you're standing by our side and you're going to say, okay, these are the tools that you're going to heal. You're going to have to take these medications. You're going to have to do yoga, meditation, um, go some some trauma healing. And we actually have to do the work in order to heal. But you empower us to say, you could do it. And with the relationship, within the relationship of all three, the medicine, the person, I don't think a a psychiatrist can heal a person that doesn't want to heal and doesn't want to do the work. You could give them any medicine in the world, they still won't heal. I believe that you empower us and you give us the sense of it's going to be okay. We've done this. We understand the brain. We understand the medicine. We understand what is broken. And this is how we're going to put you together. And by giving us that it's going to be okay. The hope, I call it the hope, is what gets us to work hard, to get out of our comfort zone, to do the work. That's what I think it is. I think that's really a rather profound and amazing (laughs) kind of uh, integration. I'm going to end off by thanking you and giving you an acknowledgement for Uh, walking me through this process, for believing mm -hmm. in me, for giving me hope. I don't know what you give Mm -hmm. others, but me, you gave hope. You gave gave me clarity. You gave me a sense of comfort. You gave me Mm -hmm. a sense that I'm not alone. And you gave me a sense of you're okay, but not being okay. And the fact that you checked up on me and nothing was dramatic, everything was okay and very soothing. I think that was a big part of my journey of healing. So I want to thank you. Thank you very much for being in my life nine years ago that I can speak Mm -hmm. to you now so many years later. And um, thank God I'm well and I'm off meds for so many years and you guided me off of them. And I have two more children. Thanks. Thanks to the healing process. Wonderful um, catching up with you like this. And uh, I appreciate all your thinking on this matter too. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.